a giant leap for women astronauts and a mysterious visitor from outside our solar system. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The Space Exploration Podcast from WMFE. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last month, astronauts Jessica Meir and Christina Cook made history by conducting the first all-female spacewalk. While women have been spacewalking since 1984, this marks the first time a team has been made up of an all-female crew. There have been 221 spacewalks at the ISS, and 37 have included women. But overall, there have only been 15 female spacewalkers. Retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott is one of them. We'll chat with her about the historic milestone and what that means for gender diversity in the astronaut corps. Stott is also an artist, the first to paint from space. We'll talk about her efforts to inspire the next generation of space explorers through art and outreach. Then, a comet from interstellar space will soon visit our solar system. We'll talk to our panel of expert scientists in our segment called I'd Like to Know. We'll ask them, what the heck is this thing and should we be worried? That's ahead this week on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. Pro complete. How about you cut off? Boeing completed a critical test of its Starliner capsule designed to take NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. It's part of a partnership between NASA and private companies to launch astronauts to the ISS from Florida, a first since the end of the space shuttle program in 2011. Last week's pad abort test fired the capsule's emergency thrusters in case astronauts would need a quick escape from the launch pad. Boeing and NASA are calling the test a success despite only two of the three parachutes deploying. It sets the groundwork for an uncrewed test to the International Space Station next month, December 17th, launching on a ULA Atlas V rocket from Cape Canaveral. NASA is also working with private space company SpaceX to ferry astronauts to the station using its Crew Dragon capsule. SpaceX is planning a test of its abort motors on a capsule mid-flight. That's after an anomaly during testing destroyed a spacecraft earlier this year. SpaceX has already completed a test mission to the ISS, and NASA says the company could send the first human astronauts early next year. Speaking of SpaceX, on Monday, the private company ended a three-month-long launch drought here in Florida. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition, liftoff. With gratitude to our veterans today and always, go USA. SpaceX launched 60 of its Starlink satellites, the company wants to blanket the globe with high-speed broadband internet access. It's the first round of thousands of satellites needed to complete the constellation, and SpaceX isn't alone. Another company, OneWeb, plans to start launching 30 satellites a month next year, and that has some worried about orbiting traffic and the potential for collisions. SpaceX says the network can operate safely. Each satellite is equipped with systems to steer it away from potential crashes. And if a satellite dies, it will fall out of orbit and burn up safely in the atmosphere. Whether or not the companies will play nice and how satellite regulations might change is yet to be seen, and only time will tell just how congested space will become. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org space. And give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Last month, Christina Cook and Jessica Meir conducted the first all-female spacewalk. 
While women have been conducting EVAs since 1984, this was the first time the team was entirely women. An all-female spacewalk was actually planned months before, but an issue with the suit sizes on the station put those plans on hold. Astronauts on board the station managed to prepare two medium-sized suits for Cook and Mir, clearing the way for the historic mission. Writing an op-ed for the Washington Post this week from space, Cook and Mir reflected on the spacewalk and what it means for the future of all human explorers. They write, quote, The real achievement is the collective acknowledgement that it is no longer okay to move forward without everyone moving together. NASA's mission is to answer humanity's call to explore. If there is any part of humanity that's not on that journey, we are not achieving our mission. They continue to write, quote, The efforts to equalize exploration are what really ought to be celebrated. I'll go ahead and link that op-ed on the show notes online at wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Retired astronaut Nicole Stott is another female spacewalker, one of now 15 women who hold that title. We spoke about Cook and Mir's historic venture outside the ISS and what that means for gender equality in the astronaut corps. Well, I think, you know, just uh, back a little bit, I think that even before these two women went out the hatch for this, uh, this spacewalk, I, it was so cool to me that we are in a position now where we have uh, a mix in the astronaut office that allows that to happen without it being contrived or forced in any way. And so that's what I loved about this whole thing was, yes, it's historic. These two women went out, went out and did this really successful spacewalk. And at the same time, it happened kind of naturally from the, the core that we have in place right now. Yeah, I think it's important to note that, you know, this, this wasn't planned. There, there are four astronauts up there that were able to conduct the spacewalks. And it just so happened that these two astronauts were right for the job. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, we have um, the way we send uh, crew to the space station now. There's this expectation that everybody will be trained and skilled and capable of doing a spacewalk, and I think we demonstrated that. You know, you have this mix of crew. Every you know, you can't keep sending the same two people out the door all the time too, and especially with the different talents and things. It's I don't know. I love the way this worked out. And and we'll talk a little bit about why spacewalks are so difficult and why you need to have so many different people because they're just exhausting and, and they're very intricate and they're not easy. But I want to ask you, Jessica Mir joins you in the group of female spacewalkers. Uh, she makes it 15. The first woman spacewalked back in 1984 by 2019, did you expect that number to be higher? I, I, you know, I expect the numbers to be higher for everything. <laughs> Fair but point. I think, I know, I know. Um, yeah, I guess I would have by now, especially with the number of women that have flown. Uh, when you look at that, which isn't really huge either in the grand scheme of things, but I think we're we're kind of we've kind of had this gradual slope up, and I think it's just going to be. Uh, you know, I don't want to use math terms inappropriately, but it's going to be a little bit more exponential now in that uh, we have this mix in the core. I think right now, like 36 percent of the NASA astronaut core of active astronauts is, are female. And with the way we train all astronauts to to do the different tasks and, and you have to do that at this point. You know, we're not sending up hundreds of people at a time with all of these different you know, specialties. So you really have to be jack of all trades or Jill of all trades if you want to go that way. 
and and capable of performing in these different you know different areas that are required up there. Well, let's talk a little bit about the training. You mentioned it's it's difficult. Um, you know, you were a spacewalker. What's the training like uh, for something like that? Yeah, well, a lot. Yeah, you're right, a lot. So there's, you know, there's kind of the textbook side of it, and there's the actual physical, you know, implementation side. And the textbook side is that you need, I mean, you need to understand how this this personal spaceship works, that you're going to be going outside and, you know, crawling around the space station and doing the spacewalk-in. So you need to understand how it keeps you alive, what the different components are. It's like, it's like learning about the space shuttle, but your own little personal one. That is a, this wonderful tool that we have to allow us to, to go out into this, you know, void of space. Um, and then there's the, and that's a lot. Let me tell you, that, that is a lot. And that happens in simulators along with the, uh, the physical, like, hardware side of the training, too, where you're using this 300-pound suit in, in an environment where you don't, I mean, you really physically can't just walk around in it. So you're lifted with cranes and platforms and stuff so that you can get in a pool. <laughs> and there could be some relief of that to where you become kind of neutrally buoyant and can move around in the suit effectively enough and efficiently enough to be able to train for the tasks you'll do in space. What kind of mental preparation goes into a spacewalk? Did, did you speak with other spacewalkers? Um, because I've got to imagine it's got to be just an incredible moment that, that just really messes with your emotions and your perspectives when you, when you walk out of that hatch. How do you prepare for something like that? You know, I think that there's a lot of on the job for that, but certainly I think we all, I don't know why you would not use the resource you have at hand with all of the people that have done this um, before you. And I talked to a lot of people <clears throat> and uh, I think that really, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> I think that really, you know, helps you kind of settle into it a little bit. And, uh, I, I remember speaking to someone and them telling me about uh, how they had a checklist for when they went out the hatch and it wasn't a checklist for, you know, they had their checklist for the, the task itself, but there was this checklist of things that they had heard from other people and, uh, what they wanted to make sure they understood when they went out. It was things like, okay, I'm coming out the hatch. I'm holding onto the handrail. Do I feel like I'm going to fall down to earth? You know, there were. Oh, wow. Is that a thing? That's a thing. I mean, there are people that have come out and felt immediately like they were falling. Oh, gosh, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, you don't want that. So that you want to check that off the list. Oop, nope, that didn't happen. And then there's, you know, this kind of disorientation feeling. Um, you know, you want to check that off the list, even though that might happen in some ways throughout the spacewalk. Uh, there's nausea. I mean, people have felt nauseous before. Um, I can't imagine what that would be, <laughs> that would be like. So, you know, all these things that you're wanting to check off the list that I was so thankful to have spoken to somebody about and just, you know, and very thankful that, that they didn't happen to me necessarily. Um, I did feel at one point I was a little bit like, wow, this doesn't look like what I remember in the pool. And, and it was right, right after I was coming out um, of the hatch at the start of the spacewalk. And I, you know, I had all these cues, physical cues that I used in the pool to let me know I was on the right path. And when I got out of the hatch of the real space station, they weren't there. 
And it was like in the pool, there was this cable that hung down and I always had to dip under it to move around it. In space, it was neatly strapped, apparently, up to the side of the station. So that that the way your brain can mess with you a little bit that way is interesting. Even though you know you are in the right place, but you're looking for something that's familiar to you to confirm it. And then, of course, you have your crewmates inside or with you out there that can say, yep, Nikki, you're on the white path. Keep going. <laughs> so that's good. What about the view? Were, were you ready to see that? You know, you think you are. Uh, I think the answer is no, because it's, it becomes very different than this view you weren't ready to see out the window of the space shuttle or out the window of the space station either, because it is just so, I don't know, crystal clear, overwhelmingly beautiful. And now you're outside and that view is happening for you through your own little personal, you know, visor. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's that's what's between you and that that scene and it is a it's a really beautiful distraction and I think you just have to remind yourself you know that you're out there to work you're going to be out there six hours or more and that you catch a glimpse of it every now and then with you when you can um I was really fortunate to have uh, a time where it was about 20 or 25 minutes where I got to ride on the end of the robotic arm from, oh, it was so awesome. It was from, you know, I picked up this box off the end of the space station, the Columbus module, and then we were taking it, um, or the crew was going to take it home on the space shuttle. And so I got to hold on to this box that would weigh 900 pounds on the ground. And I could like, you know, do any of those, hang on to this box on the end of the arm. And then Kevin Ford flew me from the end of the station down into the payload bay of Discovery. And it was the most surreal thing I think I ever experienced because it was super quiet. Um, I fortunately had set my temperature really like perfectly. I never felt like I was getting too hot or too cold. Um, and I felt like I was holding that box and standing still and the station was moving out of my view. Earth was moving up into my view. And then all of a sudden the payload bay of the space shuttle was there. It was like everything as it should be, maybe was revolving around me while I stood there like perfectly still. And I always imagined that that would be just kind of this bumpy ride, you know, kind of jerky, bumpy ride. And I tell Kevin that it was his flying, his flying made it so smooth. And it might've been, I, I don't know, but I did not expect it to be like that. And let me tell you, when you got 20 minutes to watch you know, one spacecraft move out of your view and earth move into your view and a space. It's just, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just something that I'm so thankful there are pictures and videos as I tried to do the little click it in my brain. Um, just so peaceful. And so, you know, just so wonderful to have something like that as part of this really kind of, you know, technical, mechanical, um, space work we were doing, but to be enjoy, be able to enjoy just the real, like who and where we are in space thing as well. Now you mentioned it was difficult to describe that perspective, but you have tried to convey it through through your art. Tell me a bit about how your artistic ambitions um, and your perspective of this planet have kind of evolved um, from your time here on Earth and then your time here in space. Yeah, I. Um... 
I'm really thankful to have the opportunity to to just even try to share this story. Uh, I think all astronauts feel the same way. There's this this I don't know this obligation you feel inside of yourself to to get it out to as many people as possible, and we all try to find our way. Um, art has been that way for me. I had the chance to paint while I was in space, which was just something I took and did because it's something I enjoy down here. Uh, and that has become, it's become a, a fun platform for trying to communicate to people, first of all, that might not even know we have a space station, at, which to us, you know, to you and I, that seems like, how can somebody not know this? That, you know, for 20 years, we've had people from 15 different countries working peacefully, successfully in space, you know, circling the planet every 90 minutes, all with the intention of improving life here on Earth. And, but that view out the window, it's, um, I remember the first time, like thinking like, wow, this is, this is kind of like my earth rise moment. Like we, we all should find our way to have one of those somehow, but the, the recognition of who and where we are in space together, this idea that we all live on a planet, we're earthlings, only border that matters is that thin blue, beautiful glowing line that I was seeing out the window. And and now working, you know, through art and artistic things to try and convey that um, to as many as possible, and and have been really fortunate I, to to now have really brought together my my two passions of space and art um, to work with children all over the world. Um, we have a small team of folks. Uh, we formed something called the Space for Art Foundation, and at this point, we have kids from over 45 countries. Uh, we've completed eight, I would call them global community space art projects. Um, Space-themed art therapy is kind of the basic premise of it, but really working to bring these children together who are going through what you hope is the worst thing they ever have to deal with in their lives, whether that's, you know, cancer or, um, we have children in refugee centers now or in very, very rural, you know, schools and places where the school is the hospital and the school and the community center and where, you know, where people get care. And um, it's wonderful. They all get it. These kids get it. They, they work on these projects and they're thinking about their future because space has a way of helping us think that way. Well, tell me a bit about those projects. Um, like one of my favorites is, is the Spacesuit Art Project. Um, tell us a bit about how that came to be and how these young artists are contributing to this really neat project that is literally out of this world. Yeah, that's that's all of our favorites. The um, That project started, I like to say, with one artist in one hospital uh, in one country. You know, the, the first suit was called Hope. And I was invited to participate with uh, a wonderful artist named Ian Sion, who um, at the time was the founder and director of the art and medicine program for the kids uh, in the Pediatric Cancer Center at MD Anderson Cancer Hospital in Houston, Texas. And uh, he had this idea about uh, bringing kids' artwork together in some form with space. And after we told him that um, at this point in time, he wouldn't be able to be artist in residence on the space station to do that, <laughs> which I, I applaud him, please. I applaud him. We, we hope one day that will happen. Um, but long story short, ended up 
uh, with spacesuits as the idea. Uh, wonderful partners with ILC Dover, you know, the amazing spacesuit company who's been doing that for us for a long time. They volunteered to quilt um, children's artwork together into these spacesuits. And it's grown from one, you know, hospital in one country to, like I said, over um, 45 countries. And uh, each little piece of these kids' art, which is so beautiful on its own, little fabric piece that's been painted, is brought together into a beautiful art spacesuit. And you look at it together, and it's like it was meant to be. You know, and no one told any of these kids what they had to paint, <laughs> which is so cool to me how you could then sew all of it together to the pattern of, of our spacesuits, which ILC does, and for it to come together even more beautifully. And, and I think that's the premise in it is that, you know, these kids are struggling with something. Um, this, this artwork is, is certainly a creative outlet for them, but I think it's a a way for them to transcend that experience. And it's because we use the space theme that they can start thinking about, you know, their own future through it. And, and they, they absolutely understand that they are earthlings on a planet after they do this thing. It's amazing. It's, it's quintessentially human, right? It's, it's like this beautiful collaboration that just comes together. And I think it's, it's almost, you know, analogous of, of our collaboration in space, right? Everything comes together for one purpose. I think it's perfectly that. I love it. I love it that you get it because it's so perfectly that. I mean, when we moved, when we moved from doing the suit in the, in the one hospital to uh, the unity suit was our third one. We flew, uh, we wanted to get something up to station and the station, but we have folks in the station program that have been so supportive as well. Um, Gordon Andrews, I cannot say thank you enough to him. Uh, and, that we wanted to get something up to the station. So we had the kids paint uh, on a, a flight suit, you know, that we could know we could pack up super small, <laughs> compress it. And then Kate Rubens wore that on the station. We did a video conference with the kids in Houston. And, but while we were doing that, the whole time we felt like, oh my gosh, this, this is bigger than kids in just one hospital. And this is something that we could mirror what we've done with the space station program and communicate it through these spacesuits too. And so the third suit that we did was called Unity. And that suit is built from the artwork from children and hospitals in all five of our uh, partner, you know, international partner headquarters cities. So Ian and I traveled to, you know, to Moscow and Tokyo and Montreal and where else would that be? Cologne, Germany, and then in Houston. And we painted with kids there brought in astronauts and cosmonauts, you know, you call your friends in to come paint. And, and then ILC Dover built this suit that the message was exactly what you just said is all this art from all these kids in these different countries coming together to show how much better it can be when we put it all together, when we cooperate, when we understand the interconnectivity of it all. And, um, and then, for us, we presented that through a beautiful art spacesuit that ILC created for us. Now, along with, you know, doing this art therapy with these children and promoting global collaboration through the suits, you're also highlighting the importance of creative skills alongside, you know, technical and analytical skills that are needed in the space program. Uh, do you think that there's enough focus? Um, you know, when we talk about, you know, STEM education and, and promoting STEM careers, 
is there enough spent on the creative side of things and how how important was the creative side as you were moving through your career as NASA? You know, I am a, a total believer in this intersection between science and art. I think there is, the, it, you know, all of us maybe have a tendency one way or the other, but there's a blend. There's this beautiful blend that is always happening. Uh, the best engineers, as far as I can tell, have some beautiful creative skill, whether it's through the equations they're writing or the the piece of hardware they're designing. Uh, that That's creativity. And I, I think and I, I love the the STEM movement that has happened, this idea that we really need to encourage, you know, a broader population to uh, to participate in these in these kinds of careers. My problem along the way, and I think it's shifting big time now. I mean, we're really starting to see a shift. Um, my problem along the way is that we got so, so pushed to this idea of STEM. And I, and I say this because I saw it in my son's schools and stuff, is that schools started to not get funding for the arts and the social studies and the humanities side of education because there was so much focus on the math and the hard sciences. And um, I think we've deprived our kids by doing that. I think we need to make sure that our children use their whole brain. <laughs> and I don't know if we call that Renaissance education or what, go back and take Leonardo's cue or whatever, but um, there is a shift happening now. You know, whether you want to call it the STEAM thing or what, I mean, I've never been big on the acronyms, but. Um, A NASA astronaut, not, not big on acronyms. I am not big on the acronyms, yeah. I do know how to use them, but uh, I will tell you, there's in some places it's just not required. And uh, but there's there's a big shift happening, I think, in the way we we're going to educate our kids and this idea that you have to blend uh, creativity in one form or another. And, and that could even be through humanities, you know, looking at like cultural creativity and that appreciation of that. Um, with the sciences. I think you cannot look at the space station. Tell me, Brent, you cannot look at the space station, not tell me that that is a masterpiece. This It's a work of art hanging in space. And, um, and I think it always comes together that way. And I think that, you know, we tend to think about, I'll just use astronauts as the example. We tend to think about astronauts being this one side of the brain, you know, technical, scientific, you know, hardware, um, I'll tell you, I've discovered that probably a majority, if not all, of my colleagues have some creative outlet integrated into their lives as well. And that's part of what I like to try to showcase, too, through, you know, through different um, activities, whether it's exhibits, you know, bringing these people together to say, hey, science and art can come together in a very creative way in our lives and meaningful way. Finally, Nicole Stott, since retiring, as we've discussed, you've done a lot of outreach, bringing that unique perspective of this planet back from space to us here on Earth, and, and also inspiring the next generation of explorers. With that said, um, what are some of your hopes for the next generation of space explorers? Wow, I hope that they are, um, I don't know, I hope they are as inspired and as much as I have been through, you know, through my life with all of it. Uh, I, I, and I say that because I know it's always changing. You know, we have these waves of um, what we're doing in space, what we're not doing in space, but there's such opportunity there. And uh, I think that, 
I don't even know how to say it. I just think that there's there's this awe and wonder that comes through um, appreciating who and where we are in space and allowing that to drive how we utilize space to, to make life better for all of us. We've been speaking with Nicole Stott. She's a retired NASA astronaut and now has the Space for Art Foundation. Nicole, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast of this show for an extended interview with Stott. We talked about the training that goes into a spacewalk. Subscribe on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, an interstellar traveler is set to pay us a visit soon. Should we be worried about a comet visiting from outside our solar system? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. An interstellar comet is zooming through space, and it's about to make a pass through our solar system. It's only the second identified space rock to visit us from interstellar space. So what can we expect, and why are scientists so excited about it? For this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we're joined by Josh Caldwell and Addie Dove, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, where we start our conversation with a simple question. What the heck is this thing? I2 Borisov. Oh, okay. Yeah. It <laughs> is a great clearly. name. Yeah. yeah. It is It's uh, all in a name. <laughs> it's uh the second positively identified object that we've seen coming from another uh system around another star other than our own. It appears to be a comet, so it's got material coming off it as uh comes off the comets in our own solar system and those are icy leftovers, icy building blocks of planets that formed when our solar system formed, and this one formed around some other star. Mm -hmm. And most of the comets in our own solar system are in this region of space we call the Oort cloud. It's a big sort of spherically distributed region of space with a lot of comets, uh, but they're so far away that they're very weakly bound by the sun's gravity. So that means they can be pulled away. So presumably some passing star or gravitational interaction caused comets from some other star's Oort cloud to leave that star and travel through uh, interstellar space, and it is heading our way. Yeah, and it gets the, so it's the name is I-2, so we name objects, so uh, asteroids have an, often have an uh, A in front of them, or some other nomenclature, and then comets get a specific nomenclature, so I indicates interstellar, and, and it's the second one we've found. You would think that something like this would be more common, but, but it's not, right? They probably are pretty common, it's just that they're um, hard to see, and we're starting to get to have the technology now where we are... are able to detect them better. Um, mm -hmm. So we have a lot of these surveys now that are detecting things like asteroids and comets that we never would have seen before. Um, and that's just because they're able to either stare at the sky for longer periods of time or see dimmer, uh, smaller mm -hmm. objects now. And comets are really small. They're 10, 20 kilometers across, and space is really big and empty. So my, my favorite scale comparison is if you shrunk our sun down so that it was the size of a grapefruit, the next nearest star would be another grapefruit in San Francisco, where we're here in Florida. So that's how empty mm -hmm. the nearest space neighborhood is. And comets would be invisible little specks scattered around the southeast, mm -hmm. basically. <laughs> you know, So very, very hard to see unless they come close to you. So there are probably lots of these things floating through the galaxy in interstellar space, but 
they've got to come close enough for us to see them because they're so small. And mm-hmm. most of what we see, and when we think of comets, we think of sort of this maybe diffuse haze around them or a tail for mm-hmm. comets. But those features only appear when it comes close enough to the sun that it starts spewing gas and, and material out because mm-hmm. um, it gets heated up, right? So these objects, when they're far out, even in our own solar system, are just sort of icy, rocky blocks that are out there. Um, and so even then, they're hard to detect in our own solar system. So they could be out there, we just haven't seen them. They're definitely out there. Yep. Okay. Uh, and That's a rogue, little concerning. Rogue, rogue, <laughs> rogue planets, as they have been nicknamed, are probably out there as well. Planets mm-hmm. that have been scattered out of their home solar systems are roaming among the stars as well. Probably fewer of those than there are the comets, but they're bigger. Uh-huh. And there are uh, ways that we might see those at some point in the future as well. Now, Josh, you mentioned this interstellar object is from another star system. Does that mean we can make observations of this object about the star that it came from? That's one of the really cool things, because we've seen planets around other stars, but this gives us a chance to see the building block of a of planet, planet around another star and compare it to our own. We've seen a lot of comets in our own solar system. With this new interstellar comet, we've got enough time to look at it, unlike the first one, mm-hmm. where we can study its composition and get a better idea of, well, did it form in a different sort of environment than the comets in our own solar system form? Mm-hmm. You mentioned that that last object that passed through that was in 2017, and it was very quick, right? I won Oumuamua. Umu- yeah, it's got the name I was going to let you guys pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, got it. Yeah, I got that name, which sort of basically means interstellar visitor, I think. Wanderer or, or something wanderer. like that, yeah. Um, and that one was, was seen after it had already sort of entered the solar system and was on its way out. So we didn't get very, we didn't have a very long time to look at it. But this new object, I2, was seen as it was coming in. So we've been able to take observations of it as it's coming in, and we'll be able to for a couple Another of months, I think. Another few more months, yeah. Um, and, and so the great thing about that is that we can get its orbit a little bit better, um, so we can sort of predict maybe where it came from. Um, but also, as it's coming in here and as it starts to outgas and as we can look at it with different types of telescopes, we can see what its chemical makeup is um, and how it, comp- like Josh said, how it compares to other things in our solar system. Yeah, that's one of my favorite words in astronomy is outgassing. That's that's when it that's when it uh, <laughs> yes. it, it gets warm enough and, and it starts spewing and gases. Sometimes those things uh, are rotating when they get close to the sun. You can have explosive outgassing, <laughs> and you really want to be careful about that. <laughs> well, so so we kind of have an idea of what this might be, right? It's it's an interstellar comet. Um, but thinking back to science fiction, I'm thinking that this is going to be something like Arthur Clarke's Rama. <laughs> Do we have to or, worry about this? I think maybe actually it's the whale ship from Star Trek Four. <laughs> The, that big probe that mm-hmm. was sent by another planet. If uh, it comes in parks nearby, we should be a little bit worried. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Let's see if it, it starts vaporizing our oceans. Uh, no, certainly nothing to be worried about. Um, there was some interesting measurements from the first one, I-1 Oumuamua, that its uh, motion was not perfectly explained by purely gravitational mm-hmm. forces. Uh, but that's frequently seen in comets because of this outgassing and explosive outgassing. That's basically the thing acting as its own rocket. Mm-hmm. And so that can move it in funny ways that you wouldn't predict. And there wasn't, as we didn't have as good of observations about that. So people thought maybe there wasn't actually outgassing. So how does it have this mm-hmm. this motion? And this... so there were some hypotheses about it being a solar sail or something like that. Um, and maybe being an actual alien ship. But it's more likely... 
uh, that it was some sort of just rogue comet uh, mm-hmm. from another interstellar system. And we hope we find a lot more of these because mm-hmm. it's a pretty fascinating way to study things from other planetary systems. And I'm surprised it took us this long for you to drop a Star Trek reference there, Josh. Yes. So <laughs> I've been restraining myself. <laughs> We've been speaking with two thirds of the hosts of the Walk About the Galaxy podcast, Addie Dove and Josh Cowell. Thank you both for speaking with us. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. That was UCF planetary scientists, Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell. They host the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org space and never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.